and welcome to FTP for Triathlon People. I'm Morgan. I'm Cameron. I'm switching up the intro. I said hi instead of hello this time. What'd you think? It sounded the same. Really? Yeah. You didn't notice? No. All right. Out there, FTP listeners, if you notice I said hi instead of hello this time, shoot us a DM. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, we're coming to you live from Gun Barrel, Colorado here in Boulder. The Gobo. Gobo. We uh, got some snow this week, which was a lot fun. Of snow. Two yeah. feet, I think. I think it was a, a sixteen inches. So not total or just we got oh. snow on Monday and then snow on Friday. Yeah, we probably got about two feet. We That's what I'm d- saying. this year, obviously, we just moved out here a year ago, and apparently, this is the snowiest year on record. And someone told me that April and May are our snowiest months, which is just like so wild to me. Yeah. But we are still just chugging along on our training. Um, our coach, Nick, gave us like possibly the best week we've ever had in my young life. Is we have a sort... hike scheduled for Sunday. Yeah. Whew, hook me up. Love that. Yeah. Today we have a really exciting episode. Yeah. I feel like every episode I'm like, this one's the one. This is the exciting one. Yeah. First up, we had... I guess we just did it, actually. We're recording right now on... This is going to be really weird but to explain it, but right now we're recording Saturday night because our interview with Brees Vanderpost... Um, he lives in Indonesia. He lives, yeah, he lives in... He lives on Java, which is very cool. Yeah, but he's, what, 13 hours ahead of us? Uh-huh. So it's like 9 o'clock his time on Sunday, and it's... 9 a.m. Sorry, yeah, 9 a.m. his time, Sunday. It's 9 p.m. And here. it's, yeah, 9 p.m., here in boulder he was like can we do it like a little later in the morning i'm not like the most morning person i was like yeah you got it like we'll figure it out crazy but yeah and then after that we have a lot to talk about in the triathlon cycling running world yeah a lot of like news uh, this last week a quick teaser our conversation with Brees illuminated that he Myself and Justin Lippert are equally as wildly competitive. Um, stay tuned for the that reason why. <laughs> um, but I think we had a great time. Yeah, it was great really conversation. good. Um, so enjoy. We'll see you after. Yeah, we'll see you on the other side. Hi, guys. <laughs> Thanks for chatting with us. Oh yeah, it's, I mean, I saw you. I saw you guys uh, did a page, and uh, you guys did a podcast with uh, uh, Justin Lippert, uh, which I think is a really awesome, cool guy. And oh, awesome. uh, and I thought I'd reach out to you guys, and um, and yeah, and I, you know, I also wanted to try this this podcast thing out, and you know, I, I kind of have like a thing with my story, like I really wanted to, I really have like a desire, like an innate desire to like share it with people. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. awesome. And I think it's really a worthy story to share. Um, like a lot of people I think can relate on so many levels to you. So it's very awesome of you, I think, to be sharing. For sure. Um, so first question, where are you living right now? So, um, I basically, I live in Indonesia, central Java and, um, and yeah, look, so basically I grew up here. Um, when I, I was born in Amsterdam and around six weeks later, I moved to, to Indonesia here where my parents were already, you know, living here for quite some time. I think it was like three or four years. And uh, they built a furniture company here, and uh, and yeah, so I basically lived like all my life in Indonesia from the ages of uh, like six weeks old until all the way I was fourteen. And I lived six years in Indonesia, Central Java, where I am now, and the rest of the years, so that I lived eight years and nine years in Bali. Wow, 
We have never been to Indonesia, Southeast Asia, but it's on the list. (laughs) And we've we've seen um, your training pictures and they look amazing. So tell us what it's like training out there where like your weather is, what is it right now? Like 90 degrees and 9 (laughs) a.m.? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know, I don't know Fahrenheit, but it's it's pretty much twenty seven to thirty two degrees like all year round consistently. We only have two seasons pretty much, and uh, it's either raining season or dry season. Okay. And uh, so when you guys have winter, that's like for us, we'll have like uh, the wet season, which is like you know just pretty much raining for like four or five months straight. Wow. Uh, it's, it's not it's not even that bad though, really. So it's pretty much paradise, and I mean it's 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 nice. It's really nice. I couldn't live in the cold, that's for sure. Yeah, we are in Boulder, Colorado, and we got a foot of snow on Friday, so we are oh, wow. wishing we were where oh. you are. <laughs> no, but, like, really, like, you know, Colorado is, like, one of the places where if, if there'd be, like, top five or top, even top three places I'd want to, like, I see myself living in the future, I think Colorado would definitely be one of them. It's just, like, I'm a big mountain guy. Like, I love it. It's just, you know, up in the mountains there in Aspen or, or whatever, I can just totally see, like, a really pretty house and just really peaceful, I guess. Yeah. Something about Colorado. I've never been to the U.S., but I just like the way I see it on my Pinterest boards <laughs> and, uh, and on pictures. It's really pretty. Yeah. Living in the mountains is the dream. It is. That's yeah. for sure. Um, so we've been, I think, affected by COVID-19, shutting down our pools and all that. I'm wondering, is the same thing happening where you are right now? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, COVID-19 has like, you know, had a huge impact like all around the world. But like in Indonesia, we haven't seen... Um, we haven't seen really big things happening yet, but at the same time, it may also be because, well, I mean, a lot of people do believe that the government may be hiding certain information that doesn't, I mean, like, you know, it's just certain basic things, like, it just doesn't add up, and, um, and yeah, and I think that just causes, like, a lot less panic in this country, a lot less people, like, staying at home and stuff like that, so essentially, like, in terms of just work and stuff, I'm still going to work and all, but in terms of, like, training, I mean, I, I, I run outside still. I train indoors on my bike, and um, I always have, really. And for swimming, like, I'm pretty fortunate. I live, like, right in front of the ocean, so I'm swimming, like, every other day up in the ocean. And, I mean, like, open water swimming is just unreal. Like, I've fallen in love with it these last two weeks. Oh, love that. Are there sharks where you are? Yeah. No, it's 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 a, it's the Java Sea, so it's it's not the Indian Ocean, so it's Ooh. still like pretty safe. And we're also in the Bay Area, so there's no sharks at all. There's nothing. Wow. And um, I do get scared sometimes, but like I'm, <laughs> I've been told that it's completely safe. It's like the safest place to swim. Good, love that. What Bryce? What's the um, endurance yeah. or triathlon community like where you're at? So I mean. In like where I live, like locally, there's uh, there's a few kids out here that are doing triathlon, and I, I join their swim team sometimes, but um, nothing too like uh, professional or intense. And in Indonesia, it's like I think in Indonesia the triathlon community is is super nice. Like it's just it's very different to Europe because when we have an event here and we go to, for example, another because Indonesia's got like how many islands? I don't, don't want to make a mistake, but there's a lot of islands in Indonesia, right? And there, we have a we have a triathlon event somewhere every now and then, like for example in Sumatra, and it's the whole weekend. It's more than just racing. It's also like you know the dinner beforehand. Everyone knows each other. It's always good banter. Everyone's getting to you know everyone's having a drink together, and it's just it's I mean like I've raced in Europe before, and the way it was in Europe was more like you know we show up to the race, we race, and then we go home. And unless you're like you know top three overall, like there's nothing for you. Right. Whilst in Indonesia, like everyone kind of like, like there's different age groups and, and it's just, I don't know, it just seems like more of like a really like strong community that just holds in. And it's a lot smaller than in Europe, I guess. 
that's different. I actually have no idea how it is in US, but I definitely really like appreciate that in Indonesia because it's more than just about racing. It's just, you know, it's the whole thing combined. Experience. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really neat to hear. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've read your story. Um, and I think. Oh, you did? Okay, well. Oh, yeah. Oh, you betcha. <laughs> um, we do our research. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, so we understand that from a very young age, you've struggled with addiction. Um, and so for our listeners who haven't read your story yet, could you walk us through your experience and give us really the like high level points so folks can understand who you are and kind of where you're coming from? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess like, the, you know, we, I lived, I lived a pretty like normal life all the way until I was 14. Um, that's when I moved from Bali. And, uh, you know, knowing Bali, it's just, it's very easy to fall into a situation where, you know, you're quite exposed to uh, alcohol and going out nightclub just because there's no rules where mm-hmm. I live. You know, Bali has no rules, essentially. Like, I was 12 years old and I was already going clubbing and, you know, you can buy cigarettes underage. There's, you know, there's no regulations upon that. So that really, like, kind of made me progress into what I thought was, you know, exciting and fun. And, you know, I was, like, at a young age, I was always chasing some kind of intensity intense feeling, you know, whether that was like playing with fire or super glue or just doing things like that. I was always chasing this kind of excitement. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was like 12 years old when I started, you know, having my first strip of sip of alcohol and I realized this complete feeling of oblivion where I thought like, wow, this is something, you know, this is something that I've been looking for, you know, like all my life. It was almost like, you know, like a, like a, like love at first sight situation because I knew at that time, like, this is unreal. Like I want to feel like this every day. And you know, I, I really believe that there's two types of um, addictive personalities. There's the type that where you are addicted by trauma, so you're trying to use to kind of suppress the feelings that you felt, and there is a type of addiction where you're feeling too you like you're you're using to feel as opposed to using to not feel. And I I really believe that you know that my, that my personality falls more into that kind of situation where I was really you know finding this type of excitement in something and drugs and alcohol. But so mm-hmm. that progressed and. Until I was 14, I started using drugs, and my parents said, okay, you can't live in Indonesia anymore because, you know, if you're caught with drugs here, it's like 20 years in prison, plus plus, and a lot of money, bail, and, you know, it Jeez. can potentially ruin the company and everything because it's under the same name. And, um, but yeah, then I moved to, to Europe. I lived in Holland for, because I'm half Dutch, so I lived in the Netherlands for six months before I got kicked out of school and kicked out of my godparents' house and everything, and then I moved back to my dad's place. My dad passed away, which was a really um, hard moment for me, which I couldn't really, I don't know, um, I guess, I don't know. It, it was really intense, and I just couldn't place it emotionally. And yeah. that's when everything kind of, like, got really messy because my mom was living in Bali with my little brother still whilst my dad was taking care of this house here and uh, a whole furniture company, manufacturing company. And so my mom had to come over here and take over the whole place. And then my little brother and I, we were completely, you know, on our own, and we were we had to we had to live at friends of my parents' house in the Netherlands, which obviously was a complete disaster. And that's when I realized. And that's when I decided, like you know, I can't take this anymore. Like, I don't want to go to school. It's not my thing. Like I hate everything about it. I'm going to get really really depressed. And uh, and that's when I left. And that's when I bailed. And I traveled to Portugal uh, mm-hmm. with absolutely no money. And I stayed at friends of my parents' house up north and volunteered there for a few weeks before I really like started my journey and started hitchhiking all the way down the coast of Portugal from the north to the south and I did that with absolutely no money on my own and um and basically just living on the streets and doing voluntary work in exchange for some food and a place to sleep every now and then 
And that got me really exposed to this kind of community and this world where, you know, there's a lot of hippies and stuff like that. And uh, I guess like the nomad movement. And I got really excited about that because it just felt like I finally belonged inside a group where, you know, it was very accepting and whatnot. But yeah, sooner or later, drugs got really the best out of me and things started going downhill really, really quickly. And yeah, I mean, it, it continually progressed towards a point where I, you know, lost it completely, especially with psychedelic drugs that I was taking at the time in South Portugal. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to go and I have to leave. And I moved to Spain. And, um, and yeah, I mean, just to continue a little bit shortly, I don't want to babble on too much. No, but yeah, you're good. I, so I, uh, I read in Spain and I remember being a complete, almost completely losing my mind. Um, had a psychotic nervous breakdown, complete suicidal thoughts. And, um, you know, I was ready to jump off an escalator, but I just didn't have the power because I had a surfboard. Uh, I had like a surfboard bag with a surfboard in it, like a 30 kilo backpack on me and then like another bag that I was carrying. And I just remember not having the power and wanting to jump off this kind of escalator thing. And that's when I realized like, you know, I don't know what to do anymore. I've completely lost it. I was, you know, hearing myself in my own head and just everything just seemed so blurry and like just this echoing of voices. And, you know, that's when I had my real moment where I decided, okay, like I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't continue doing this. And then I called my mom uh, and I hadn't called her for like months. And I said, I don't know what to do. And luckily there were friends of my parents who lived in that area in Malaga in the South of Spain. And they actually took me on for a few months, but then I got arrested for traveling underage. But yeah, I mean, it all goes to the point where living in Spain for a year again, going back to school, really giving it another shot and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then, but then, yeah, cocaine pretty much every day was what what fueled me because otherwise I was nobody and depressed, and it made me feel like I was, you know, someone that was really, you know, I was I felt like I was someone with it, and um, and that's when you know things really started to break loose, and I had to go to my first rehab. Wow. I have so many questions, yeah. I feel like, that come out of this. <laughs> yeah, <please do. laughs> um, So I think my the first thing that pops into my head is that, f- like, first of all, you you had to mature so, so fast at, you know, 12, having your first yeah. experience with alcohol, and then for, to, like, when did all of this end for you? How old were you? Um, so I... My, my sober date is the 23rd of August, 2017. And that was on my, that was uh, at my third rehab. And that was exactly, uh, well, less than a month after I turned 18 years old. Okay. So this is a really long time for you to be going through all of this. And you had to grow up so fast. You were like so independent at such a young age. But I also am hearing you say that like you're searching for a community throughout this whole thing. And I'm wondering how does that independence and like really self-sufficiency link in with your looking for a community and like feeling a part of something and wanting to belong with a group of people? Yeah, I think, you know, and that's, and that's the thing with um, the community that I was talking about like earlier, like I, you know, I, I believe like a lot of us are always just looking for some, something you know, to be a part of. And I think that's also something that I was always missing at at school. You know, I always felt somehow a little bit different to everyone and never felt like, you know, I had, you know, a group of friends where, you know, these are like real people. And yeah, I mean, independent, like now coming to realize a lot more that, you know, I'm more, much more of an independent solo person 
that, you know, is very individualistic and I'll focus objectively just on my personal goals and don't really have a community around me. But at the time, just being with a group of people, which, you know, it just felt very comfortable. But the only problem was, was, and this is a thing with like raving or hippie groups. It's just like, it's super easy to fall into because I mean, you know, drugs really like make you connected in some way. And it's just super easy to be like, yeah, you know, these are like my real friends. Whilst in fact, you know, mm-hmm. um, if they're missing like half a gram from their baggie, they'll, you know, they'll, <laughs> they'll pretty much scream at you and kill you until you give it back. If that was even the case, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question too good, but oh, yeah. no, it, it absolutely does. And just for the record at 12 years old, I was playing with Barbie dolls and was like embarrassed <laughs> that I was still playing with dolls. So like just the juxtaposition of your experience with my own personal experience. And I'm sure Cam's personal experience is just like, and I'm sure our listeners personal yeah. experience, you know, no one has gone through this. So hearing it from your perspective is I think really special. Yeah. yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. So the reason we're all here, the reason we're gathered here today is that you are a triathlete. Um, So would you say that becoming an athlete and you said your first race was a half marathon and so, you know, pursuing athleticism and pursuing sport, would you say that was the motivation for you getting clean and, um, you know, breaking your addiction or was training more of a tool for getting clean and staying clean and replacing your addictions. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not either one of them, but it's like, it's somehow like somehow connected to that. So, so let me tell you how it went. Like I got sober. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was on the 23rd of August. And between the 23rd of August and the 23rd of February, which is the first six months of my sobriety, I remember like at least the first few months, all I was doing basically is I was, you know, at home, you know, on my laptop the whole day, literally I was, I was still smoking two packs a day in my room at night until 4 a.m., gambling, uh, watching porn, eating M&Ms and drinking chocolate milk all day. It was basically like I was a junkie. I was a drug addict just without the drugs as a stimulus. And, and I was just going nowhere with my life. And I realized, like, you know, like I have to do something. I want to do something different. And that was when I really started to kind of, like, I, I was really, like, obsessed with trying to find something that really fit with me. And I started to go back into surfing a lot. And I went to skateboarding. You know, I, I started skating a lot and I started, you know, playing with like uh, these crystal necklaces, all these random things. I was always, I was, I remember fi- like having this desire to find something that would really like fit my need. And, mm-hmm. um, and I went to meditation and yoga and I went to lucid dreaming. I was always trying to find something, but I couldn't find it. And in the meantime, during that time, I was always also trying to look for a way to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, you know, it was expensive. It was killing me. And I felt like it was really like something that would be awesome if I could really achieve and when I quit like I tried to quit like four times and the longest I've been was two weeks and this was really with me trying I had you know I had the 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 nicotine patches I was I was really like really wanting to and the longest I could go out without was two weeks before I was you know really you know fed up and I started you know lit up a cigarette and then around the 23rd of uh, August uh, February sorry in 2018 my friend approached me from a NA meeting narcotics anonymous meeting he said to me, you know, I want to do a marathon. Let's do one together. Oh, I want to do a half marathon. Do one together. And he said, I'll pay for your entry fee. I was like, okay, let's do it. And we signed up an hour later. And yeah. I said, okay, right now I quit smoking. And I did. And I quit smoking. And I remember that that same day I started running just with my skate shoes and my jeans. And I was just super excited just to start this new journey of, you know, 
trying to get the best time in this half marathon. And me having, you know, I was a little bit, you know, I was very unhealthy and I was a little bit chubby and I was, um, you know, still smoking two packs a day prior to that day. And, uh, and I decided, you know, I want to make, I want to do it in one hour and 45 minutes. That was my goal. And I trained every day. And I came up with all these crazy shin splints and all the rookie running injuries. I was exhausted. I had no training plan. I was killing myself just running two, three times a day. Um, no stretching. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just running and running and running. Right. And somehow it made me feel super good. But at the time when I started the half marathon, I was obviously destroyed. I had all these injuries already and stuff like that, which I still ran. And I remember absolutely killing myself on that run. Uh, you know, going inside out. I think my heart rate was like average 200 or something. It was insane. <laughs> but when I when I crossed the finish line or I saw the finish shoot, I sprinted the last 200 meters, 300 meters, like nobody's business. And I remember just after crossing the finish line, I, I called my mom straight away. I was like, you have no idea how that felt. And it was the most amazing experience ever because it really, you go to all the highs and lows, you know, it's, you go to all the highs and lows and then you finish it with such excitement and it just brings you this, you know, this wave of emotional joy. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, you, you can't compare it to anything else. At least for me at that time, you know, I couldn't compare that with anything else. It was unreal. Right. It was suffering really bad and then having this tremendous amount of, I don't know, like self, like, I don't know, like just self joy or I don't know how to put it in words, but yeah. you know, it crossing that finish line meant a lot for me. And, yeah. um, and I remember just after I called my mom, I laid down and on the grass patch, um, and just facing the sky. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. And I remember still being like super hyped up, you know, cause I mean, running gets you like really, um, or any race, it gets you really like excited. So you're still a little bit like, you're not hundred percent in your head after a race. And, uh, and I felt that and I was just like, I want to, you know, I want to do this forever. And, you know, was it like, I was looking for my next race because I was like, I have to have something next. You know, I always had to have an upcoming race to kind of keep me motivated. And I had this, um, all of a sudden in search of my next running race, I came across this website, you know, the big red website, mm -hmm. Ironman. And I was like, wow, that is insane. And I remember looking at those distances. I was like, this is crazy. This is like, this is real stuff. This is not a joke. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, <laughs> and you know, coming from a place where I was, I was just like, this is impossible. And I remember as a kid, you know, kids, you know, at school, they'll be like, oh, have you heard of this thing? There's this crazy endurance event called an Ironman. And I remember that time when somebody said that to me, and that kind of moment flashed in. I was like, imagine if I did that. So I spoke to my mom. I said, Mom, I want to do an Ironman. I want to do. I want to do an Ironman. And you know, the Ironman that I want to do is in Malaysia, and it's on the it's on the 17th of November, if I'm not mistaken in 2018, which was exactly nine months after I quit smoking. Okay. And um, I remember being like, okay, this is real now, and I have to start training for it. I didn't have a bicycle, but luckily my dad had a pretty nice uh, carbon road bike, which I converted to a triathlon bike, which my mom sent over from, um, from Indonesia to Holland for me, so I could train with that bike. And I started training uh, religiously. Uh, I straight up had a coach, and what, I ha what, what, what really got me, you know, but I started to really realize it was something that I was really obsessed and passionate about. And this is where it could get a little dangerous for some addicts, right? Because, you know, how, what, why are you doing this? What is, what is the motive? What is the purpose of, of you training so hard? Are you running away from something? Are you, um, you know, are you trying to numb your pain in some other way? And at the time I didn't know, all I knew was that, you know, I want to run. And I remember everyone telling me, cause I was at a sober house during this time, right? Which is a place where you go after rehab for, 
nine months or one year and you live with a bunch of uh, addicts and you don't have any curfew. Well, you have a curfew. That's the only thing you have. But um, yeah, it's basically really free. You can do whatever you want. And I was living with a bunch of roommates who were all addicts. And I was obviously the youngest at 18 while everyone was, you know, uh, 30, 40 and and 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so... So what happened next is, you know, I started training religiously, but what I really noticed, and this is so, you know, which I find is so, so fascinating for me is that triathlon training and, you know, getting up in the morning at 5 a.m., it really humbled me. You know, mm-hmm. I was, you know, when I, when I stopped using drugs, I was a, I was a pretentious, I was cocky and I was just a complete asshole and dickhead to like most of the people that I was around with, you know, I was very, uh egocentric and very narcissistic i would always make these remarks making other people you know feel stupid or whatever like i was just you know it, it, it ate myself up and i'm you know looking at some videos right now where where in the past where i was you know kind of an, an asshole to my friends i was like man why would i say those things you know that's something that i would not even dream of saying now right right and um and yeah so what i realized with you know getting up early in the morning and doing hard things pushing your body to the max every day you know in endurance and in and in vo2 I started, you know, realizing how small I was, you know, compared to everything. And, um, and what I, what it also built was tremendous amounts of self-respect and self-confidence because I started respecting myself, you know, so I'm, I'm going to work on myself, I'm going to eat healthy, I'm mm. going to sleep well, and I'm going to, uh, you know, hold myself onto these um, promises that I make for myself. And I remember, you know, all my friends would tell me like, yo, you've really changed, like, it's really good. And that's when I realized, like, you know, this is, this is, you know, the sport thing is, you know, doing something really good for me. Now, the question is, is it really like something with sports or is it something to do with passion and, you know, finding something? I personally believe it's sports because, you know, getting on a bike and pushing yourself physically and mentally to a level where you didn't feel like you would, you know, be comfortable or could even achieve does something to your mental state where you're just like, actually, I'm not that, you know, I don't know. At least this is how I felt. How I felt, you know, like I'm not. I'm nothing compared to, you know, something. You know, like when you realize you can't even push 300 watts for for a few minutes at that time where I was at, you know, I realized, you know, I'm actually I'm actually not that strong, or I'm actually nobody, or something like that. In, in a very, it was a very humbling experience to say, right? Mm-hmm. And um and yeah, so I continuously and religiously trained for months and obsessively and very. I guess, anally about everything. You know, I was very meticulous about aerodynamics whilst having absolutely no idea about it. I started researching everything about it and I started getting really into the sport, watching old triathlon Terran videos and whatnot, um, you know, making notes and stuff like that. And I, you know, I did an Ironman in nine months. I went to Malaysia and I did it. And um, I mean, to this day, I think it was one of the best races I've ever performed. And, um, and it was just, you know, it was an insane experience. It, it was, you know, doing the whole bike. The bike was great. The run was awesome. I was enjoying myself so much. I put myself to a level that I couldn't think I was ever, I never thought I was able to achieve. And when I crossed the finish line, um, there's this picture uh, of me hugging my mom. And I've never seen my mom, you know, I mean, if there was a picture that, you know, kind of defines proudness, you know, it's and, and happiness. And, you know, my mom was literally crying in tears of joy to see, you know, where I was and how I became and how I managed to finish an Ironman. And not only that, but less or a little more than a year ago, I was still, you know, in Amsterdam, smoking drugs, um, you know, t- popping drugs, sniffing drugs and doing all sorts of things and basically playing with life or death. Right. And to this complete huge transformation, 
you know, for my mom, that was something much bigger, you know, huge. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that will always be a moment where it's just priceless. I could never, yeah. Yeah. And it was really, I hear as well, when you're talking about your first race, the half marathon, um, the pride that you felt crossing the finish line, I'm, I'm projecting here, but I feel like there was, of course, a level of like pride for finishing something that you set out to do, but also I think like there was a level of control over yourself that you had to have in order to train and like be regimented. And I feel like with your history with addiction and like kind of spiraling out of control, I think I'm wondering if like feeling that level of control for training and, and control over yourself was part of that pride when you finished that race and every race after this, you know? Yeah. I mean, you mean just you saying that right now just made me a complete like, you know, uh, revelation. And it's so true actually. And, you know, in, in, in certain moments like that, you're just so in the moment and so conscious and so in control of yourself and everything is kind of muted out that you're, you know, you're so, um, and you know, above that with training and stuff like that, you know, it is cause I am in fact very much a control freak as much as I hate to admit it. Um, which is ironic considering the drugs I was taking, but being in an environment where, you know, I could really test myself in every, in every sort of like training variable, um, you know, swim, bike, run mm-hmm. it, uh, and nutrition and all that around it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, being in control of all that kind of felt somehow satisfying because, I was, you know, all that control was the result of something like a good race, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. T- taking it back a few steps, um, I know that you did a, sure. I know you did a sprint before you did your full. Um, what did that? Oh like, yeah, absolutely. What did that first race, like that first triathlon race experience? What was that like for you? Yeah, so I mean, that was, I think that was like a, a month after I did my half marathon. And um, I remember I, 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 I hit up my friend and I said, uh, my friends actually, and my, my uncle, I said, can you please come? It would mean a lot to me. And they all came for me. And um, and it was, <laughs> it was, it was nice. It was actually, it started off like as a pool swim and I did pretty okay. I did an extra lap in the pool. And I got <laughs> out and I, I did, I, I biked really hard, as hard as I can. And I remember running, and I remember I was—I mean, it was a five k run, and some—and I asked someone like, "How much longer is it?" You know, one of the things who looked at me like, <laughs> "I was like, why would I be? You know, why why would anybody be asking how long a five kilometer run is left? You know, for the, you know it's only sprint distance." And uh, and I remember going, and I was like, "Finally, it's finished!" And I remember <laughs> like arriving in that red carpet, and I put my hand up, and you know, that was really. It was also another moment. You know, there's certain like. Um, finish lines that really meant a lot to me and um it was uh, you know the half marathon was one of them but that you know the first triathlon was also it was exciting because it you know the the half marathon was just it wasn't there was not enough you know the whole swim bike run is completely different and i and that's something that really uh that really stuck with me like i knew after the first triathlon like i was like hey this is something i'm gonna do for a very long time like i love this this is there's there's no feeling that kind of can compare to this and um and yeah, it was just, it was an unreal experience. My friends were there and, uh, and they all cheered me on and, you know, they, you know, my friend gave me a really big hug and, and I really felt, I really felt, I don't know. I felt like I really found something special for once in my life. I never had that one thing. I never had that one thing where, 
you know, there was always someone at school that'd be like, oh yeah, he's, he's really good at tech or he's really good at surfing or, mm-hmm. you know, he's, you know, really good at you know, maths or whatever. And I was just like there, I didn't really, was never really good. I was good at taking drugs and drinking and talking about drugs in a, in a way, but I was never really good at something. And I felt like at that moment, I finally found something that I could potentially be good at and could potentially, you know, be like known as, okay, that's, that's the, that's the kid that does triathlons. Yes. Nice. The triathlete in town. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so did like aside for your running experience from your half marathon, did you have to pick up the basically the swim bike and run for your triathlonic career? Yeah, I mean, so I um, I very athletic kid growing up. Actually, I was really pushed into sports a lot. Well, not pushed. I loved sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did. You know, in Bali, we have this thing called BSSA, which is Bali Sports School Sports Association, which all the schools kind of. Uh, play against each other and and swimming there's swim meets there's football um, which is uh, soccer um, and there's basketball and there's all these things and I would join every single I would do the, I would join the basketball team I'd join the, the soccer team I'd join the swim team and um, I was never really good at swimming the only thing I was good at swimming was the was the was the hundred meter freestyle okay. that was the only thing I was good at and but I did know how to swim so I did I like swimming was 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 something I picked up quite easily fortunately and mm-hmm. I got to like a, a comfortable pace relatively quickly just because of the muscle memory and whatnot. As for cycling, I did a lot of cycling growing up with my dad. My dad, um, you know, he wasn't a cyclist, but he really enjoyed cycling. He, he loved it. He loved the, yeah, the low impact of it, you know, like the long distances and the beautiful views. Mm-hmm. And as for running, I mean, running. So like, uh, yeah, I mean, as a, as a kid, I was running quite a lot. Uh, but nothing like too special. I mean, I did a lot of, uh, I did a lot of soccer. I did a lot of basketball. So I guess, you know, that, that running, that kind of athletic, you know, but like I had an athletic body. I was like, you know, athletically built and all that. And I was also very active as a young, as a young kid growing up. So I think that that definitely played a big role in starting out in triathlon and building fitness so quickly because I wasn't, you know, unfit or I wasn't, um, well, I was for sure definitely unfit because of all the smoking and all the drugs that I've taken. It's definitely harmed me in some way, but I, I, I was definitely like, you know, an athletically built person. So I think that definitely, you know, gave me somewhat of an advantage because despite all this drugs and cigarettes situation. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that really surprised you throughout all of your training for triathlon? Um, yeah. Um, there's, there's a few things. I mean, the, the first thing I, I, I really, like the main thing was, you know, how much it, um, made me like how much it humbled me down and how I became, how I turned like within a matter of two months from becoming a complete asshole to a person that was actually starting to care for people and, you know, be a nice guy and started, you know, you know, caring for people in general. So that's one thing that really fascinated me about triathlon. And that's why I always encourage like, you know, to do triathlon. And the second one, I guess was because I think it was not more of something that would surprise me, but something that would just made me realize a lot more, because the first year I was very obsessed with everything and I meant everything. I think I was more obsessed than what, yeah. I, w- I mean, I could say I was definitely more obsessed than how a pro triathlete would be obsessed in, in the way that I, I'm serious. It, it was, it was extremely unhealthy. I, I started, you know, counting calories for, you know, the amount of grams that I was, that I was putting uh, pesto inside my pasta. I would measure the grams of the, of the pasta. I started becoming really, really obsessed with it. And, you know, I got really carried away with it because I thought like, you know, the only way to be good is to, you know, start counting everything. I started measuring my sleep, my, at the time, you know, everyone was using HRV. I don't know if that's still a thing, 
um, you know, doing HR, HRV and, you know, counting my heart rate all throughout the day and doing, you know, the steps and the sleep was a big thing for me. And I started just getting really involved in all these little small things that, you know, it's kind of just like was a bit too much for me. It wasn't sustainable. Yeah. I mean, maybe for some people it was. And in uh, and, and the first year it was okay. But making like the fact that I had to carry that out, like the fact that I carried that out in like my second year of triathlon, I started getting a burnout pretty quick because at the time, my first year, all I was doing was just training and chilling with friends because, you know, it was my first year of sobriety. I was at a sober house. Um, I was having a good time. I didn't really have any responsibility. I could do whatever I want. And I was just kind of chilling and just finding myself in some way. But, you know, and when reality kicks in and you start, you got to start, you know, earning and earning money and, you know, starting to work, I started realizing, okay, I have some responsibilities now. And I, I start to have to like, you know, show up to, to work and stuff like that. I can't just, you know, be training all day and, and doing that type of stuff, which was fine. You know, I'm a very dedicated, I have, I have a very like strict, um, I can be very strict with myself. I have really high self-discipline. Mm-hmm. But um, combining that with triathlon at the level of obsession that I was at in the variables that were, you know, unnecessary to be obsessive about started to really like bottle up in me and I started having like a complete nervous breakdown. I remember crying on a mm-hmm. Friday Friday evening saying like, I can't do this anymore. Whilst in fact, I wasn't even doing that much, but it was just more the mental pressure that I was putting on myself. And, and yeah, with all this, you know, obsession, obsession and with counting calories and the sleep and, you know, doing good at work and stuff like that. And that's when I really lost touch with balance. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much it, I guess. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, hearing about your breakdown, if you set those goals for yourself as like benchmarks and like your HRV is a little too high or a little too low one day, or like you eat too many calories and you like exactly. miss a goal, like that can derail you very, very fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's, ex- it's, a, yeah, you're spot on on that. It's exactly that. Like, you know, if you're like, I was really obsessed with numbers and power output and all these different, like really like, you know, you know, all the training, I was obsessed with training peak graphs and stuff like that. And I was, you know, making sure everything was perfect. And in a moment where it wasn't perfect, I would really beat myself up for it, you know, and, and it was only very recently, I think like six months ago where I stopped training with heart rate because I remember I based, you know, if my, um, if my mom would be like, Oh, you had a run. And I was like, yeah, you know, most of the time she'd be like, how was your run? I'd say it was okay. It wasn't good enough, you know, or it was a pretty shit run. I was never satisfied whilst very recently since I stopped using heart rate, every time my mom has asked me, you know, how was your run? I said, well, it was a pretty good run. I had a good time and I felt really strong because I was always basing how good my run was, was on my heart rate as opposed to, you know, how I felt and stuff like that. And sure, I mean, heart rate is an objective measure of, you know, how your run may be, but there's a lot of variables that affect your heart rate, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, that's what my coach recommended to me, you know, stop using heart rate, you know, you know, just run by feel. And, um, and I think that's, you know, that's something that I learned over time just to be more, yeah, just to listen to your body more and be more accepting with how it is, you know, and not be obsessed with all these numbers and, you know, beat myself up and compare my, compare my times with other people's time. Like I'm, I'm actually in my training room right now. And, um, there's this picture on my wall. Uh, it says it's the logo of Ironman Malaysia. And underneath there is the kid that came is a photo that I bought from, uh, from finisher picks, <laughs> which is the kid which is not my picture. It's, it's the picture of the kid who came first in my age group. And I bought that picture and printed it out and put it on my wall. And I never actually see it, but like I see it now because mm. I don't really train here very often anymore. I train in my own house. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that's how obsessed I was with it. You know, I'd have his picture 
on my wall while I was training. I was looking at that like every day. And, um, and I was like, I'm going to kick his ass one day. You know what I mean? So that's, you know, that, I mean, it's funny and stuff like that, but it gets to a point as well where, you know, like it's not really healthy either, you know? And, um, and yeah, it's, you know, I somehow there was always this kind of, I didn't really want it to be recognized as, you know, the junkie kid who got sober. I didn't want to be recognized as, oh, he's just, you know, oh, he's that guy that got sober. I wanted to be recognized like, oh, he's the guy that got sober and did this, but I wanted to be recognized as something else. And I think I always was chasing this kind of, I had to prove my, like myself to other people. I had to prove everyone wrong. And I guess that gets really dangerous to a point because if I always compare myself to people who are better than me, I will never really be satisfied. You right. know? And I mean, I think hearing that as well, when we were planning this interview out, we were trying to be very careful about our questions because you're writing a book on your story. You've published your story. Sure. You have an Instagram that's like framed around your history with addiction. And I think that is absolutely made you who you are today. And it's such an important part of your experience. And and it's like a framework, but it's not like everything. And you have so many other layers to yourself. And I think the post addiction period is where we are now. And I think that's like the most important thing to be talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, what I'm what, what what I'm grateful for what I found in addiction and I was you know I was sending a voice message to a friend that I was in rehab with in my last rehab and she was having a hard time and I said like you know what's really good about us is that when we have a hard time we can instantly be super conscious about what to do next and that's what made me grow so much um, just personally as a you know as a human but uh, in every kind of aspect, you know, in triathlon, in life and work, you know, when I, you know, when I feel something like, Hey, this is not right, you know, I'm like, okay, let's, let's watch a few YouTube videos about it. Let's, you know, let's talk about how I feel and stuff like that and improve on that. And I guess that's what allowed me to grow so much as a person in, in, in a short period of time. But ultimately like, you know, why I, why I make this kind of platform with sharing my story and everything like that, it really, really, um, I mean, I, I, I thought I had, I always wanted to write about my story because I knew it could inspire people. Yeah. Um, especially at Ironman, that's when I first wrote about my article. But it was six months later when I did um, a talk. At, well, I did a speak. I, I spoke at, at the at my rehab. That was a third rehab that I was at, and that's a rehab that's special for thirteen to to twenty five years old for kids. And mm-hmm. I remember speaking there and having all these kids look at me while I was speaking, and I was I remember being I was shaking. I was incredibly nervous, and. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I was just telling my whole story and everyone was just quiet there and I was like, fuck, I'm doing a terrible job. I don't know what I'm doing. But um, I, I spoke, I, I told my whole story with complete vulnerability and humility and the truth and I wasn't telling anybody what to do. I was like, this is my story. Mm-hmm. And all these kids, and most of them were, you know, under 20 years old and, um, you know, they we're talking about like, you know, it's <laughs> like a few of the, like, the most uh, pretty heavy kids that you see, you know, like they've, they've done like crazy drugs and, that have crazy depressions and stuff like that, like really mentally unstable kids that are, you know, going through a really hard time. And I remember telling them, I said, like, listen to me, like a year ago, one year ago, I was exactly, or no, I said two years ago, two years ago, I was exactly where you were and look at me now. Right. And that all that is, is just by finding something. And I remember telling these kids, I said, like, listen, I'm not going to tell you what the psychologists are going to say or psychiatrists or what you hear in NA meetings. I'm just going to tell you what I personally feel and this is anecdotally to my experience. And I told them, like, us addicts, we have a power to, an ability to kind of 
go through and do things with 200, 300% energy. We can just go all out and focus on something if we really want it. You know, and I, and I, and I shared that with him. I said, like, look, if you're, if you're really like producing music, for example, and you're, let's just say, obsessed with that, you can tap in into a power where you can spend the next, you know, 10 weeks obsessively looking on Google or watching, you know, YouTube videos and stuff like that and really get to know the ins and outs of it because that's what I did with triathlon and I started, you know, becoming really good in a very short period of time with, with all that information and that kind of drive to kind of learn more from it. And, um, but yeah, all that aside, I remember them looking at me at the end and saying like, yo, that was, you know, the best story I've ever heard. And I remember seeing these kids where it's, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're tough street kids. Some of them were. And, um, and I remember like just seeing the vulnerability in their eyes, They're, you know, the, it, I felt like, you know, it really touched them and I really felt that they wanted to hug me mm-hmm. and talk to me more and stuff. But, um, when I, when I felt that kind of emotion between that group, which I was sharing my story to, I was like, okay, this is, and I, in terms of emotion in that kind of, I guess, in empathetic, I don't know, like the most empathy I've ever felt, or I don't know how to like describe that in words, but during that moment when I shared that story, I was just filled up with this crazy emotion. Like it was just like, I think the most, like the biggest fulfillment is life in life is when you can influence life or when you can inspire life. And I, I kind of felt that. And I felt like, you know, I even, you know, most probably these kids are, are going to, you know, hear the story and the next day, you know, they, they'll, they'll be coming in, they'll, they'll, they'll get into this kind of 24 hour, um, practicality high where they're just, you know, working hard on their recovery and then they, and, uh, and then they just forget about everything and they go back to their normal lives. Generally, that's what happens. You know what I mean? Like people read like an inspirational story, they watch a YouTube video and they get into like this practicality high. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to get up and they do that for two or three days and they, then they just like fall out on it. And, uh, but that feeling that having that potential, if one, if a coin drops in one of these guys' heads and they're like, okay, I'm really going to focus on it. That makes everything worth it. Right. Yeah. All it takes is that one person to like be impacted. by. Absolutely. You. Absolutely. Um, so we've also read that your goal is to win Malaysia, your age group at Malaysia and qualify for Kona. Is that still what you're shooting for? Has that changed? Yeah, actually, I have to update that story because a lot has happened during that time. But I mean, okay. Kona will always be on on the on the goal list for sure. Uh, winning Ironman Malaysia, I think there would be no better place to kind of qualify for Kona than in Malaysia, just because it was my first race, and I've done that race two times now. And um, I think it'd be really awesome to go to go there for the for the third time and kind of take the win. And but to do that, you know, like I'll have to. Because I, I told myself, like, you know, whatever you do, you have to be have to qualify for Kona before you're 24 years old. And I've taken a break from Ironman racing and just focusing on 70.3 and Olympic distance just okay. because, it, you know, I had a very – actually, I had a pretty terrible experience with, with Ironman racing, this, this last Ironman in Malaysia, just the training and the buildup. I was so unmotivated, and I was killing myself doing these long runs and these long bike workouts. I was just not feeling it. So I decided to take a break from that and focus on 70.3 racing. Yeah. But ultimately – I think definitely that's still somewhere the goal, but I would say more so that besides triathlon, I've had, I've taken a more of a, of a more kind of, I mean, I mean, I took more of an emphasis on the goals inside of work and my career life, just because I'm also really, really heavily invested in that. And I really want to see where I can achieve in that because at the time when I was training for um, my first Ironman and that, you know, my first year of sobriety, pretty much, 
I had, you know, I had a lot of inspiration from Lionel Sanders, an absolute beast. You know, I had his post on my wall, and he was really, really motivating. It was, you know, an integral part of, you know, staying motivated during that first year. Mm-hmm. But um, at that time, I was really like, you know, maybe I'll have a shot as a professional triathlete. You know what I mean? Like, I really would like that. But afterwards, after Ironman Malaysia, I started training again, and I, I realized something. And this is one of the things that I... I say quite a lot, and um, it's a quote that I guess I made, but it was you know a lot of influence from other quotes. Like Buddha made the exact same quote, just worded it differently, and I, this is the way I worded it that made me felt like you know it really connected with me. And that quote is, you know, it's not about how bad you want it; it's about how bad you are willing to suffer for it. And you know that may be a very personal quote to me, but I think that's really important to me because I realized that you know. Ironman racing is important, you know, and, and it's fun and I love it. And it was, you know, an integral part of my sobriety and my recovery, but I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not willing to suffer that much to achieve, you know, um, to become a professional triathlete. And I don't remember exactly who said this. I believe it was Matt Steinmetz, Matt Steinmetz, which is the, the founder of 51 Speed Shop. Yeah. He was in a, in a podcast with Triathlon Taren. I'm not too sure, but I remember him saying that I... Or, or it was him, or it was either Matt Dixon. But one of them said, "I, um, I just didn't see myself, you know, pushing myself to that limit and going through that much of physical and mental pain every week to become a, tra- a professional triathlete. I just didn't see that. And I thought that I was like, yeah, I, I understand that. And um, and that's when I realized, you know, it's not about how bad you want it. It's really about how bad you are willing to suffer for it. You know, everybody wants to, you know, bike as fast as Ferdino or." Um, or, you know, I mean, even on in different levels, like, you know, everyone wants, if you want to become like a professional actor or stuff like that, that's great. But are you really willing to, you know, spend all this time, you know, obsessively working on yourself to improve and, you know, become to that level where you are so-called, you know, the 1% in your industry or, you know, super good at it. And, um, and I think it all comes down to how much you're willing to suffer for it. And I've realized that in my life and besides triathlon, I'm willing to suffer a lot more for my career and in the way that I can, you know, build um yeah that side of it as opposed to you know pushing myself mentally and physically to the level where i don't really you know i don't don't think that will make me as happy but i still want to be the best version of myself as a you know top age grouper but i don't see myself as a professional triathlete and coming to peace with that and being like you know it's okay if you're not the best and of course like i was i think to be you know a, a professional triathlete you need to have like crazy um I'm not a big believer in talent, but I do suppose that, you know, physical talent or you know, right. something that you know, genetics, you know, do play a role when you're when you're in trying to, you know, race against Perdino and whatnot. But yeah, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about very similarly seeing ourselves have the possibility of of competing at a higher level, but then the like other side of the conversation comes in whereas like if you make this your job, will you still love it as much as you love it right now as an outlet and something you, like, just can throw yourself into when you're not focusing on something else? And I think racing for a paycheck is a lot scarier than racing for a That's podium slot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of pressure and, and, and whatnot. Like, I've spoken to a few professional triathletes racing in the Asian circuit, um... And, uh, and, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not exactly easy, you know, becoming, you know, you know, racing, you know, if you're injured or, you know, your whole, your whole, like your, your salary basically, so to say is based on, you know, how well you're racing that year and it can heavily impact if you're injured for one year. 
Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Everything hangs in the balance of your health <laughs> and your performance. Yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, I know this situation is like super in flux. in flux right now, but do you have any races scheduled or upcoming for this season and whatever we can make of it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had, I had, I was, I had a race that I was really looking forward to, which got canceled, which was supposed to be, I think a week ago. Yeah. Like last weekend, I believe I think April 14th or now. Gosh. Yeah. Around, around a week ago. And, um, and uh, but it, that was Super League in Bali, which was uh, yeah. the the enduro race, which is you know my favorite. Like I love watching Super League, and I was like, yes, finally I could race that. But uh, that got canceled. And the next one on the list is seventy point three Lombok, which is um, the island nearby Bali, and I, that hasn't you know nobody's talked about that being canceled yet, but probably will get canceled. Jeez. And uh, and then I'll have seventy point three Bintan, which is another race in Indonesia. Uh-huh. And um, and depending on how I do in Lombok. Uh, I was hoping to go to Taupo, but I don't think I'm in that level of fitness right now to make that kind of, I don't know, to, to, to be so certain about that. <laughs> yeah, but anything could happen. I mean, yeah. this season <laughs> so far has yeah. been pretty wild. If you listened to our conversation with Justin Lippert, you know what time yeah. of the interview it is. <laughs> um, my favorite part, my super fun questions. <laughs> um, okay, so first one, what's your favorite piece of gear and why? My favorite piece of gear. Um, wow, that's a good question. I guess, I guess my um, oh, super hard. I, I guess, I guess my wheels. Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> you can't get anywhere <laughs> I, with that. It's just, yeah, it's just because like there is a significant difference in in speed. But I, I don't know how far are we going because I mean like wheels are awesome, but like aero bars are you know to to another level also pretty awesome, but. I guess wheels because, you know, the comparison, like, I mean, if I, I train with aluminum um, training wheels basically like all the time, mm-hmm. if I'm not, unless I'm on the kicker, of course, but um, if I'm racing and I'm on those, on those, on those 80 millimeter deep section wheels, I mean, you're flying on, on any course and it's just, that feeling is unreal and you really feel that kind of difference and it feels like you're just flying. Yeah, for sure. Love that. Um, it sounds like yeah. you are no stranger to a challenging workout. Um, I personally love a Gatorade and some ice cream after a really hard bike. Um, so what's your favorite or like go-to treat after a hard bike or run or swim? Oh, um, I, like at first it used to be this, um, vanilla banana milkshake. Just something about that. Super refreshing. And I don't really like, yeah, I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's my favorite, (laughs) like a vanilla banana, but then, but then like with vanilla uh, protein powder, so it'll be somewhat good. Yeah. Okay. But for sure, that's for sure. Love it. Um, you may have yeah. already got into this too with Kona being like your ultimate bucket list race, but outside of Kona, what's your, what's one of your bucket list races? Um, so, I guess uh, a bucket race would be, um, Norseman probably. <gasps> Me too. Unreal. <laughs> That's like the unreal. ultimate. I, I watch it every year. It's just like I just I wish I could race that one day. Yeah. Awesome! That is a challenging one for sure. Yeah, it looks cool. We'll be your yeah. pit crew when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, and then last one. What is your favorite race? It might be Malaysia because it was your first, but my favorite race is definitely like I said. I say it all the time. It's Bali Triathlon. 
Okay. It's um, it's a yeah, it's it's a local Olympic distance race. It's the it's the it's the most it's the most well uh, organized race in the Indonesian circuit of triathlon, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just the best vibe ever. It's a three day three day event. You got everything mm-hmm. going on. The best Indonesian athletes are there. It's just the community is huge. The massive dinner is there, and uh, you know the, the the after party is really sick. Everyone's having drinks and everyone's having a really good time. Uh, that race is just unreal, and the course is pancake flat, so it's super fast. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, everyone's cheering on the run. Uh, that that race is always the race I'm looking forward to every year. It's right. um, yeah, it's really to because t- it's also like a test for my Olympic distance speed. And like I, I broke my, I, I was five minutes faster as opposed to last year, la- awesome. you know, the year prior to this. And um, and yeah, like every year, I just like I always test myself to go a little bit faster. But Bali triathlon, like if anyone's ever down to go to Bali one day. Go around November. That is like the race. That's the best race ever. All right, All right. sign us up. Yeah. We're adding it to the bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we've alluded to this a little bit. Your social channels, your website. Where can our listeners follow you? Uh, well, I mean, yeah. So I, um, my triathlon junkie, which is the kind of this um, my Instagram um, persona that I created. And uh, as for YouTube, it's basically Brees Vanderpost, but I mean, everyone can find that on my, on my link in the, in my bio and that's a triathlon junkie. All right. Okay. And then last question, um, when is your book coming out? Uh, my book, I plan to finish my first draft by before my, before my 21st birthday, which is on the 27th of July. Okay. And, um, as far as going to publish it, I don't want to say a certain date because I don't know how far uh, or how um, how the situation will be with, with the editing and whatnot, but I do hope around a month after the 27th of July to be publishing my book. Thank you so much for chatting That's with right. us. This has been a total blast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you guys are awesome. Thanks a lot for this uh, this awesome podcast. And, um, and uh, yeah, good luck to every single other podcast episode you'll make. <laughs> All right, <laughs> hope you. to see you out there. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to our interview with Breeze. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Yeah, it was a really good conversation. Um, But we'll get right into it because the interview was good and long, and I have a lot of stuff that happened this last week, too. Stacked agenda. I know. So first up, um, I guess a quick little Cam's Corner. So first, we want to go into rim depth because we haven't gone into that, or like we talked about that last week, but we didn't really explain it. Basically, it's just like it's just how deep the rim is into like the center of the axle. So, like the lighter ones are going to be a little bit like narrower of a depth. Think like twenty millimeters, thirty millimeters, even like forty millimeters. Um, and then your deeper section wheels, obviously going to like be in like the seventies to eighties. Um, I think they even went into like the hundreds at one point, but those have since gone off the market. Um, but those are going to be more aerodynamic, um, and a little bit stiffer. And then you obviously have your disc, which is just a full carbon like sheet. So the depth is from like where you'd see the tire meeting the wheel to where the like edge of, of the rim is yeah like where you start seeing spoke right like okay. the nipple yeah wait so to the axle or to where you see the spoke to where you see the spoke where okay. like the nipple is i don't know what a nipple the is. the nipple is like <laughs> the nipple is where the axle meets the rim 
<laughs> it's like that they feels look... unnecessarily what crude. <laughs> no, that's what it's called. It's called a nipple. All right. Anyways, so that's that real quick. Um, second, I saw this last week um, that there was just speaking of like ripoffs, but like there's a Chinese company that ripped off the Wahoo Kicker, the smart trainer. Nuh-uh. Yeah. What'd they call it? They looks like they called it Think Rider. But it looks exactly like the Wahoo. Yes, it like has the exact same design <laughs> as the Wahoo. Probably because I mean I'm guessing that a lot of these things are produced in China. But, yeah, it was just, I've also seen just a lot of knockoffs of Vaporflies and Alpha Flies recently, and they're really hard to tell the difference. I mean, this one, obviously, it doesn't have the Wahoo sticker on it, but right. it's just, like, really hard to tell the fakes between the fakes and the real things of the Alpha Flies and the Vaporflies, and that's really, like, obviously disheartening because they're super expensive, and you want to make sure you're getting the real thing because that's the only way you're going to get the 4% advantage or whatever. So, I don't know. It's just very... Just be careful. I mean, buy them from Nike or a Buy them, yeah, Nike Your local or... run shop or Nike. Those are the only two that I'd trust. Right. And I'm like, not buying vapor flies off of Craigslist. <laughs> right, or eBay and stuff like that. Yeah. If you feel like there's a red flag, I would say trust your gut. Yeah. You wanted to talk quickly about the like deals that a lot of companies are offering for stay at home. Yeah, we got in a couple, seen a couple cross our paths. Yeah. One, one that we just saw was Ventum. They have a stay at home thing where if you buy a bike from them, you also get a smart trainer and ten percent off and ten percent off. And I guess always Whatever like their, their warranty like, is. Thing, yeah. yeah, they call it assurance, which to me is. I think it's just their warranty. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I think you need to be careful about naming. Anyway. Uh, track. I mean, all track, the yeah, track is, doing... is just free delivery. And then Quintana Roo is doing a free wetsuit with a bike purchase. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I think all of those incentives are pretty cool but i you do have to think about the reason that they're incentivizing in this way you know they must be also being quite adversely affected by i think everybody's just hurting for business yeah. right so they're just trying to throw in There's all these a ton incentives. of sales tons yeah. of sales yeah um so i guess that does it for cam's corner even though that was like a hodgepodge of cam's corner but just into a bunch of triathlon news from this last week um so the kona qualification period was extended to august 30th which was a week yeah it's i think it's seven days yeah literally literally a week um but and only includes one more race within that window right which is canada right yeah it's ironman canada um and we talked about the two other races that have added slots on the last episode and it looks like they are, I guess Ironman being they, they're going to just now fill all of the additional slots to anybody who's eligible in their legacy program. So I don't know what percentage that's going to make up of the field, but it's obviously going to be a pretty big majority considering not a lot of people have qualified for Kona yet. Uh, and we've talked about the legacy program before. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about this. 
If I'm being completely honest with I mean, you. They, I mean, they are sent into a lottery, so effectively it's probably been backlogged with more and more people over the years, and That's now true. it's like probably going to catch up, so... and the, But I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I love and appreciate the Legacy Program. Uh-huh. We, we've talk, we did talk about the Legacy Program, and like yeah. how important it is for individuals who, like, the goal is Kona, uh-huh. you know, and haven't been able to reach that goal, or... Yeah, reach that goal yet. Right. You, yeah, you can't get be part of the legacy program if you already been. Okay. Um, but I, I almost feel like accepting more cheapens that for those folks. Even though it is a lottery. Why? I don't know. They've all qualified. It's just waiting their turn. I guess that's true. Okay. I stand corrected. I concede. I just want to stick up for those folks. I don't want anyone losing out in this whole scenario. I don't think anybody's losing out except for people who... Plan to qualify. Plan to qualify at like Iron Man, Texas. <laughs> no, like Texas, and they didn't get to. Right. Um. Next, I thought an interesting thing would be how long do you think that it's going to take for like everything to open back up first, and then for racing to continue? Because like obviously, if everything opened back up tomorrow, yeah. great, that's great. But then does. Iron Man and all these organizations, do they just institute, like, the race instantly that next weekend? Because that obviously would spell disaster, I think, for anybody who wasn't swimming during this time. Because that's obviously the biggest thing. But, like, even in, like, a running race and a marathon, it's like, how do you know that everybody's been, had ample time to train or had access to train? Like, some countries are literally locked in their homes. Like, they can't go more than 10 meters outside of their house at a time. Yeah, I, like, high-key wouldn't put it past Iron Man to be like, oh, like, everything's back open again, the race next weekend is still on, and just have people, like, expected to go. Yeah, especially with how profit-driven they are. Exactly, and, like, I think this is really hurting them to be, first of all, rescheduling and allowing people to continue to race in that, and then if you can't race in that, you're not getting your money back, and you're still going to be like, you're going to be able to race in next year's race. Yeah. Because we, theoretically, if you look at Puerto Rico, we would have raced this year, and then we would have registered and raced again next year. Right. However, I won't be able to go, at least as far as we know, this year, this fall, for the rescheduling. Yeah, that was rescheduled for September. Yeah, like September 7th or something. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, presumably projected I will not be able to go to that so I will be using that deferral and racing next year so they'll be losing out on whatever my 475 plus 40 dollar processing fee yeah for that race yeah I don't know I would think that you need if you're up to me in a perfect world I would say you probably need like eight weeks from the time that things resume normalcy to when racing can continue but which is I I mean I have said it before, and I love when you give deadlines, when you're like, well, this is my threshold, and this is now the official threshold. But, like, there are races in June that haven't been rescheduled, canceled. We haven't heard anything about Des Moines. And, like, we're getting into that eight-week, like, your eight-week cutoff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Especially with how things are appearing to be going now, it's like things are going to be, at least in America, things are going to be phased that's what is I mean, if you're Florida, they're going to be, they're open Just already. Open yeah, but like, things are going to be phased. So like, step one is like, 
tiny things open up like mm-hmm. restaurants but it's like takeout only or something i don't know well and then phase two is like still have to socially distance you still have yeah. to wear a mask and then it's like okay and then it steps up and you can gather in groups of 50 but that's still not big enough for a race unless they somehow i'm like, telling you wave a, starts yeah waves of people who are allowed in transition at a time waves of people to start yeah, exactly like a giant loophole yeah that's the only way you could do that and then i don't know It'll just be interesting, but yeah, I think even perfect what I, eight weeks is still kind of short, but especially like if you sign up for your first Ironman and you've never learned how to swim, like you have eight weeks to turn yeah. that around. I don't know. I think we were talking to our friends, or not our friends, we are talking to Matt Our and producers! Literally today, and we were <laughs> like, I don't know, I think that New Zealand and Taupo is even... I think being, it's a little sketchy right yeah. now. Which is a bummer. I mean, Brees was even telling us in our interview earlier that he was hoping for it, but the way things are going, it may not ever work out this year, you know? I know. It's like, I don't know. Things might be open, but like, it's going to be so different from country to country by then. And like, every country is going to be in a different situation. And I don't know. New Zealand was one of the first places to completely lock down too. So I'm sure they're going to be strict about allowing the entire globe to fly into their country but i guess we'll see i don't know i think eight weeks that's my thing that's my that's my minimum so you're eight weeks after what we start phasing things back after after like eight weeks after bars are back open no 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 not bars after like the majority of pools and (laughs) the majority of pools and And gyms gyms are back open yeah i'd say eight weeks you know it's crazy but I would say eight weeks, and that has to be like fifty percent of the Ironman population. So like that's the big Ironman participation countries. So like Australia, New Zealand, America, Germany. the UK, Germany, whatever Europe, that sort of thing. The whole of Europe, South Africa, like yeah, I guess like golly, this sucks is, to say like first world about. countries. Yeah. So the long term effects of this, I know. I mean, some people, I was reading another study this last week that said that, like, social distancing is possibly going to continue until, like, 2022, so, fun times, fun times. Anyways, I'm just bummed that we have a pool that, our, like, big outdoor pool here, Scott Carpenter, that was supposed to open up this year, they, like, were renovating it, so we didn't get to experience it last year. But they're renovating it, and I was super excited for that. But who knows if we're really even gonna? I'm wondering if they're, see that. they've put their construction on hold. I don't know, but they were doing construction out here, they've like by our house. Out. I don't know. We'll see. We'll keep you all posted on our dreamy pool situation. Um, next. if anyone in the Boulder area has a pool that they'd like to let us use. And they feel comfortable allowing us to use it, given that I'm still going into the office. And... I will bake you banana bread, bake <laughs> you pies, your your baked good of choice on a weekly basis. Yeah. Hit us up. Hit us up. <laughs> we have nothing more to offer other than that. <laughs> yeah. I'll and our company. Bake you things. Um, next, a lot of race news, given like virtual race news. Right. Um, so we'll start with the women's super league triathlon race. Um, 
there were what there were a bunch of different Zwift races this week, but the first one, Zwift Classics, um, and this is the women's side this time. We saw the men in London, and then the this is the second one. So now the women, um, and Super League Triathlon put together a squad again. Um, I didn't. I mean, I hate to say it, but there Taylor Spivey. Yeah, there weren't any like standouts in this one. Taylor Spivey. No, I'm saying like standout results. Oh. Like nobody really like performed that admirably, which is well. Taylor had um, technical, technical difficulties. And I think it was also her birthday when she was perform when yeah. she raced. She was so bummed, and she's in Portugal. Yeah. Is she from Portugal? No. She was just she's like. From, that's where she's training like, training there? trip. Yeah. Um, she plays 81st. Georgia Taylor Brown. She placed 65th. Um, Cassandra Bogrand, 47th. I'm going to butcher these last two names. Um, yes, yes, yes. Le- I think it's Liani Peralt placed right. 40th. And the first place, um, f- or not first place, first place on Super League Triathlon's like, all-star team. She placed 26th. Ilaria Zane. Oh, that was an easy one. Uh, but... <laughs> yeah, there you have it. No, like, crazy standout results. The woman who won it, though, I watched the race. She, like, literally blew the race apart on the final climb. It was pretty exciting to watch. And then one of the Zwift Academy athletes um, for their cycling program on Zwift, she was actually in that, like, final, that final, like, pack uh, going up the climb, which is really exciting to see, Ella Harris. Um Anyways, on to the next race, um, which was another Zwift Classics race, um, this time over on the men's side. And this one was a little bit interesting. It was still like the team format, and so they Zwift, or not Zwift, the Super League Triathlon All-Star team like had their same team format and everything. But this was like a points race, not just like a whoever's first across the line. So this is a lot more team tactics. A lot more similar to what Super League normally does, right? Mm, not super. I mean, I guess sort of, yeah. There's like more points classification, but it's more, that's still determined on who's first across the line in every race. Oh. This is like, it had like, it was more similar to like a real cycling race, where it was like, there are two sprints per lap and there was two KOMs per lap and each of those like awarded a certain amount of points for your team and then the final finish awarded the most points um it's kind of interesting watching Super League Triathlon's tactics though it was like again the typical triathlete mentality where it's just like push the most watts yeah for the longest time and we need to work on our race strategy just triathletes in general (laughs) yeah I know we every single result literally I have not seen a result where the triathlete has not pushed the most watts and the most watts per kilogram and have the highest heart rate and everything and still finishes, like, pretty mediocre. <laughs> I think the only one is Lionel. Lionel's been the and only one. And that's because his heart rate is, like, freakishly low. Yeah, but he, he did push so many He watts. did push the most power, but he just attacked at the right time during that race. I think it might be Zwift experience. What are your thoughts? It definitely is. He uses Zwift a lot. And I'll get to that, but... Okay. Um... It was interesting seeing their strategy again. It was basically just like push the most watts, and I think they were all gunning for just being the f- like the first. They're gunning for basically the finish line because the sprints, the sprinters always won those in like a perfect executed lead out and everything, and use all their um, power ups. power ups. Yeah, 
Um, and then the climbs, they didn't really like the climbs in this one were super punchy too. So, I mean, it was basically a day for the sprinters all around, but they actually did pretty good. Um, as a team, they got sneaked into the top 10. They were like nowhere near the top 10 the entire time. And then they, I think they ended up finishing ninth, which was pretty exciting. And these races are against like cycling teams. They're against like pro cycling teams, pro esports cycling teams. Oh, so those um, guys are like. They really know what they're doing. The pro East. The pro, yeah. Teams. So the people who won this race, like the team, was actually a, a pro esports cycling team. Interesting. Yeah, but Alistair Brownlee got fourteenth. Oh, um, Alex Yee got nineteenth. Vincent Louis sixteenth. Uh, Richard Murray ninety second, and Christian Blumenfeld one hundred sixth. Um. Yeah, they snuck in and they got ninth, which is pretty exciting. Lionel was also in that race, and I think he helped his team get second. I think that's what he got. Canyon ZCC. Can't, I think it's Canyon Swift Cycling Club. I'm not sure what it stands for, but um, yeah, he was like right in the mix. I thought Lionel was gonna pull a breakaway within like the last one or two k, but he didn't go. Yeah, it was just it was just a day for the sprinters overall. And on that same theme, um, Zwift announced, I think we talked about it this last week on the last podcast, but they announced their first, like, Zwift Pro Triathlon races. Um, Which is it exciting. Was, it was I actually super exciting. don't think, I think it, it may have, the news may have broken, like, the day after we recorded. Hmm. So we posted it on our Instagram, but I don't think we've actually talked about it yet. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm totally like but blacking out. It is a like pro triathlon by invite or I don't know. Pro triathletes can only race, um, no age groups or anything. And it's on Zwift's platform. It is draft legal. Um, yeah. Power up legal. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say. Um, over on the women's side, it was super interesting to see that a lot of the women – and even on the men's side too, this is like their first ever experience with Zwift, <laughs> and so like first ever experience with Zwift racing, and for some it was their first ever experience with Zwift at all. Full stop. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of them had no idea what the power ups were, which obviously like is super important, especially when racing. Like know when to pop your arrow or your draft boost, especially going into the sprint. But um, the first race, the women went off first, and both of them. Both races were around like the New York level, um, and over on the women's side, it was actually just really exciting to see. I'm personally think that it was way cooler to watch the whole race than the Ruby platform that Ironman VR has been putting on, and it seemed like most of the pros felt the same way because they were like really hyped. Plus, it allowed for like a huge like platform. I don't know, like a huge like group basically. Yeah. So there were like all the biggest names in the sports from short distance and long distance were all in there together. But over on the women's side, the winner was Flora Duffy. Who uh, didn't know what a power up yeah, was. Yeah, she didn't use a power up and she still won. <laughs> she apparently texted I don't know who it was. Paula. I have literally I love Eric and Paula and we watch them all the time and I always forget their names. Bizarre. Well, she anyway. didn't text Paula. Yeah. I don't think Paula so. posted it to her Instagram. I think she just reposted Flora's post because Flora posted oh. that she didn't know what a power up was. I am standing by that. I don't. Think I'm ninety two percent sure that Flora texted Paula and was like, "What was what's a power up?" Anyway, that's my dream scenario is that they just have a little iMessage open. Yeah, but, but she, she was did. like, "I don't know what a power up is," and she won it. 
Yeah, she still out sprinted everybody. It was definitely a day for the sprinters on the like New York map, which was kind of interesting. Um, especially watching triathletes try and sprint it out. Second was Lucy Charles Barkley, and third was Sophie Caldwell. Paula Paula Finley actually got fifth in that group. Maybe that's why she. Maybe you're right. What other notable standouts? Laura Philp seventh. Yeah. Um, and then over on the men's side, it was the same sort of thing. Um, I was shocked to see that Lionel didn't attack sooner because obviously he didn't have, I, I would have thought that anybody in short course racing would have dominated this race just because of the sprint at the end. But seemingly like, at least of the names that I recognize, I think it was a day, most of the people in the top 10 were longer course guys, but in first place, Jimmy Kershaw, second place, Anthony Anthony Costes in third place, Lionel Sanders. And that happened in, like, the last meter. Yeah, literally. That, like, Lionel was in the lead for most of the race? Uh, he was just in the lead pack. I mean, it was just the entire yeah, race. Was everybody was in just a peloton. And there were a couple climbs where the peloton broke up because people didn't stick with them. Mm-hmm. Or, like, they didn't know how to use their power-ups and stuff, so interesting yeah and like it's another thing with Zwift racing is like it's literally full gas from the start so a lot of people who don't have experience with that like we're just like oh it's just going to be a nice leisurely like start and then it's going to pick up like right. normal cycling outdoors does but no it's like literally people are pushing like 500 watts in the first you better minute. have warmed up for this yeah it's yeah. nuts <sighs> but it was cool to watch i think i think Everyone has a lot to learn. I know that we're being a lot more sympathetic to the Zwift platform than we are to the Ironman but platform. But it's just way better. I think I agree. It's like far superior. Even just like not watching it and just having. I know you didn't like the commentators as much as they could have been liked, but like even just listening to it and not watching it, I like could follow what was happening. And I found yeah. with the Ironman VR platform, listening to the commentators, it's just like droning on and on and i just want them to like tell me who's in the lead and tell me what's happening you just like don't like you can actually tell who's in the lead who's in the lead pack in this right and like with iron man vr you literally have no idea who's leading ever and another thing that's kind of cracking me up is what you hinted at which is like the pros seem to be taking a side here and they definitely where like richard murray commented on iron man's post that was like a video of the Iron Man VR thing, and he was like, "Huh, seems a lot like Zwift." <laughs> and then, and then Iron Man VR posted a video of Flora and was like, "We checked in with Flora Duffy. Like, it's clear to see the pros are all in on Iron Man VR." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're like, "Wait, what world are you living in?" Because from where we're sitting, none of the pros seem invested. Yeah, if, they, if not none, then very few of the pros seem invested. I wonder what their monetary incentive is for any of these races. Like, I wonder if Iron Man's like paying them to race on their platform. I don't know. I have no idea. It, everybody just seems way more excited about the Zwift racing, and I think it's way more exciting too. Plus, like, if you wanted Zwift racing, you can also do like TT, like time trial, um, racing in Zwift. So I think that'd be cool if they did something with that because. Is that, like, not draft legal? Yeah, not draft legal. Okay. Yeah, everybody uses their time trial bikes and stuff. I think that'd be cool. But um, on the note of, like, standardization, because with professional e-cycling or e-racing, um, 
you have to, at least from from what I've heard, you have to like weigh in the morning of and like cal- make sure your like scale is calibrated correctly. And didn't you say it's like weigh in holding a one kilogram? Yeah, like a ten kilogram weight. Ten kilogram. Um, you have to have like apparently you have to have like multiple power sources so that everything is right. And then you have to use specific smart trainers. You can't have a wheel-on trainer that's not allowed. So it's just going to be interesting to see because this is obviously like, I guess this was Swift tries like trial run. Mm-hmm. And so they're seeing like, is the um, like interest level high enough so that this is actually like a feasible thing? So it'll be interesting to see if they start doing this for money because if they do, they're going to have to make it like standardized. Well, that's the thing. Someone, I know Ben Canute posted or reposted someone calling even pros out on weight doping Yeah. for this, which I think is, I mean, I don't know. I don't know I if it's weight. I wouldn't put now. it past people, but at the same time, it, it's shocking when there's nothing at stake. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and also like, we don't know people's weight. Like, I don't know your weight, just, I don't know your weight and I spend every minute of my day with you, you know? So I can't look at Ben Canute and say he's 157 pounds, you know? So like, how do we get those statistics and compare them with what's in Zwift? I mean, that's just has to be on Zwift's side. Right. I guess just be their background work. I just, I think it's, I think this is attainable. I think what we're trying to get at is possible. Mm Mm-hmm. I think Ironman VR jumped the gun. They saw like the opportunity. They saw an opportunity for profit, specifically on the age grouper side, right? Yeah. Um, and they jumped the gun and they allowed far too many people to be involved in it early yeah. on. And I think that's really, really hurting this experience because you do see age groupers who are very clearly cheating. Yeah. Indisputably cheating. Um. So yeah. I, I foresee that, like, this will be a good thing for the sport, especially if this lockdown continues. But I just am so disappointed with the way it's starting out. Yeah. My opinion, I think Zwift Racing is way cooler than the Ironman virtual racing. It's a lot more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> like, watching the, the Ruby thing, it's so boring. I know. I ride my bike outside on those very roads physically faster than we're watching them on Ironman VR. Just doesn't seem very accurate. Anyways, um, on to the next sort of race. Um, Team Ineos had a, like, in-house race, which is kind of interesting because they obviously are, like, at least on the Grand Tour side, they're, like, the most dominant force in cycling. Um, But it was pretty exciting. Um, They, like, all obviously went after each other um they went up the alpta zwift which is like the biggest climb in zwift's game um and the winner rohan dennis the how many times i think he's won the uh world time trial championship twice now so he won which is actually really exciting he actually battled it out with triathlete cam Worf, who's actually on team Ineos. He's one of cam hackett's favorite triathletes he's not one of my favorites he just i love his you insight. like his attitude i don't know if i even <laughs> like his attitude i just i think he's really witty and he's really sassy and i think he's i think he's intelligent and mm-hmm. um yeah i think he's intelligent and he's sassy about it that's what <laughs> but um cam Worf and rohan and, and rohan dennis actually battled it out for like 
the majority of the climb, and then Dennis made a big attack and actually beat him out. Um, interestingly enough, Chris Froome <clears throat> finished just like 30 seconds behind Cam Worf, but it was really cool to see huh. Chris Froome actually like seemingly is having a decent recovery um, after what a lot of people are saying that that was a career-ending injury and he'll never make it back even on the pro peloton. So stay tuned for that. But it was cool to see Cam Worf, the triathlete, mixing up with literally the best cyclists like Garen Thomas and Dennis and Froome and... Egan Bernal and all those guys. So that is that. That's all I have to say about that. Um, on to next race. And I think the last race of the week, which was Ironman VR3, um, happened yesterday and today. Uh, over on the women's side, Lisa Norden won. And over on the men's side, Jesper Svensson won. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I have a question. Yes. So I'm feeling fatigued mm-hmm. of watching all of these races. Okay. It Do is, you, yeah. Go like, ahead. it just feels so boring. It's like the same thing every single week. Well, on which one? Ironman VR. I mean, I say that only because Zwift has had one. Uh, yeah. It I could th- theoretically become very repetitive and boring, and I know that they're all different distances, but, like, that's Ironman's coverage is, like, the same. I know, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, I don't know. They interviewed a I mean, NASCAR on side, driver today, and it's just like, why? I, I don't know. I mean, on one side, it's like, if real racing was happening right now, we'd be talking about the same number of races every weekend, like four or five, whatever. Yeah. But, I don't know. I just think Zwift is like, they're mixing it up. So, like, obviously, like, in their the most recent men's classics race, it was, like, a points race which I thought was, like, cool because that actually feels more like cycling and, like, you just don't go and try and make the break and then you just sprint out at the end. Like, it's just more complicated. Yeah, but I'm not even trying to pit Zwift against Ironman VR. I'm just saying virtual races right now, I'm seeing the exact same people lining up, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't even really gotten into my question yet. So I'm seeing, like, the same people lining up for all of these races. So far, three Ironman VR races, a fourth one on deck, one Zwift race. Like, do you think they're feeling fatigue from, like, racing all of these races? I, I mean, probably. Like, Alistair Brownlee has been racing, like, literally every single one. Or Lionel, especially, has been yeah. racing every single one. And I know that, like, Lionel loves it. He's super competitive. But, like, they are pushing their bodies pretty hard. And we've already talked about how this is... The races that they're doing on at least VR on Ruby are much more challenging than it would be to, like, for instance, race the Boulder bike course. Yeah. So I'm just, I guess there's no right answer, but I'm, I'm just wondering, like, I just would get tired of it. I'm tired as a consumer Yeah. of seeing all the same faces, hearing the same commentary. I don't know. I think the Zwift is exciting still. <laughs> Folks, I think if you Iron didn't Man, catch on, Cam loves Zwift. I think the Iron Man is getting repetitive. I mean, it's just different distances. Yeah. But now they're back the to the fifty-one fifty distance, which is, what Wait. is that? No, they... I, what? They just posted on their Instagram, like... They're doing which distance? 5150, whatever well, that is. that's... They use that, like, interchangeably for sprint and Olympic. It's like their branding of sprint and Olympic distance. Okay. Yeah, uh, 5150 is the Olympic distance. Okay, so what does that break down to again? Uh, For the VR, it's 3K run, 40K bike, 10K run. Okay. So, here we go again. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just getting repetitive, especially like the people who are competing. I just feel like this is not healthy to be racing every single day. That's or kind of what I'm trying week. to get at. Like, but every single week, twice a week, but if I'm you're talking doing Zwift. Like, yeah, but I'm talking not the pro side. I'm talking the age grouper side. I, I couldn't agree more. I've seen people post on social that they're doing it all in one day every week. Yeah. Like every Sunday weird. is race day and that like stresses me out. Yeah. You're not tapering for that. You haven't built for that. Yeah. Moving on. Um, some doping news this last week. Um, pro athlete Daniel Sapinov. Um, he's Ukrainian. He finished 24th in Kona this last year. I guess he tested positive for EPO. Um and he tested positive what it looks like he that test was from october 8th which was four days before the world championship he's competed in three different olympics 2004 2008 and 2012 for two countries right ukraine uh, and kazakhstan. kazakhstan yep um yeah he tested positive so i guess he will have a four-year ban and what happens to his past stuff nothing um nothing like because Nothing because this he tested positive after all of that, which is kind of crappy yeah. because obviously that makes everybody raise questions about his past results. results. Yeah. yeah, and obviously if he's cheating now, he's likely has cheated in the past, um, but that just proves that what we think, everybody's cheating. Anyways, um, and then an age grouper... From Brazil, Rodriguez Tavares. Um, he's in the men's 35 to 39 age group. He finished 128th in his age group in Kona. Um, oh, my God. It looks like he was tested on October 7th, so that'd be five days out from Kona. Um, it tested positive for two different things, it looks like, for <clears throat> steroids and then a drug called clomiphene. Um, and this drug, it looks like, at least it's in, in, like the reason it was invented or whatever, um, is to treat infertility in women who do not ovulate, but obviously that doesn't help him. Literally <clears throat> what? Okay. So what are the side effects that he benefited? No, it's from? not side effects. It's like how, how, it, cause that's obviously what it does in women, but uh -huh. in men, it looks like it's an alternative to testosterone replacement therapy. So he thought he was going to sneak it in. What do you mean? By being like, it's not actually no, testosterone? I don't think so. No. Okay, so why the heck are age groupers doping? Can someone answer that for me? Because he wanted to make it to Kona. Okay, but he tested for positive for these couple days out from Kona, which means he was doping for Kona to get 128th in his age group. Hello? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. J so... Anyways. There's no money on the line. Like what? Pride? Do you really feel proud of that if you've been doping for it? I don't know. I don't know. It is very interesting. But it really sucks. It just, again, solidifies what we've been talking about. That we think that there are a lot of people out there who are doping. On every level. Like every time yeah. an age grouper comes out, I just am shocked. And it makes me so frustrated it makes me question literally everything about our sport and competition. Just going in knowing that we are clean is enough to like make me feel okay, but it's still frustrating to think that like people who might not be clean are beating us or 
whatever. Yeah. Um, next, the Tour de France, um, obviously like probably the world's biggest cycling event, has been moved. Um, it's now taking place from, I guess, the end of August until the end of September instead of taking place like basically in the month of July. Uh, but, Do you think these rescheduled events are going to have to be rescheduled again? Yes. I think so, too. I, I think, think this so. is... I think it's ill-advised. Yeah, I think they just... Everything... I think everything should just say until further notice. Or, like, just, like, be like, all right, no Tour de France this year. I'm really sorry. We're doing it next year, 2021. Yeah. I, yeah. Maybe that's me being insensitive, but, like... No, but I, I agree. I think... I think... The Olympics did it. Doesn't it make sense? If I were in charge of anything, I would say until further notice. Yeah. Just be vague. We don't need dates yet, especially if they're September, August, September dates. I know. If you were like, it's canceled or postponed from June to July, that's one thing. Like, we need to know. But months out. It's interesting that they chose those dates, too, because that would be only three weeks out from when Tokyo would have been. Oh, The Olympics. So... Obviously, Tokyo doesn't feel comfortable with that, so it's interesting that the tour feels that way. So next, going back a little bit on, I guess, the Zwift Team Ineos race I talked about, Garrett Thomas is doing shifts, um, I guess effectively shifts, on his bike. He's doing three twelves a week, which is kind of insane. Uh, but he, as of now, he's raised over 335 thousand pounds for the nhs which is like britain's health service um yeah which is pretty cool going out i'm surprised at how many people are raising money yeah for stuff like jan did it garen's now doing it seeing a lot of this that wasn't even my first thought why like i wasn't like can we find a way to like fundraise i was like let's all just stay home I know. I don't know what this money is going towards. That's what I'm... Like, are they going to, like, pay hazard pay? Are they going for, like, PPE? But, like, you can't even get it, like... Right. Oh, that's another thing. PPE. What? So many producers are making PPE. Like, Wadi made PPE. I saw Sycon is making it. Santini, possibly. Santini is. Wadi sold out of theirs in, like, a couple of hours. Which is pretty wild. Yeah. It is crazy. I think it's really cool. I don't really like... Are they qualified? I mean... Is there a qualification necessary to make masks? Um, I don't think so. I mean, a lot of it's just pieces of cloth. Just any covering. Yeah. The Colfax Marathon sent out buffs to people. Because they were like, we are rescheduling, but stay safe when you're running. Yeah. It is interesting. I don't know. I... I think most people are just panicking and they're just, I mean, again, like what I saw with Sycon, they're charging like crazy prices for these masks. Really? Yeah. It was like $40 or something. For, for a mask? Yeah. Were they like, if you buy a mask, we'll donate 500 or no. something? It was just like one mask, $40. Yeah. It was something, is like, I don't know if it was, that was actual price, but it was like very expensive. Uh, by this point, they're probably already sold out, but. Hell, I'll just, just cut like, a t-shirt in half and tie it around your face. I know, it seemed just very We have some ridiculous. old torn-up cycling kits. We can use those. Yeah. Next, something that you discovered this last week. Strava is not allowing to sync with Ironman VR. Yes, another hot tip from our pal Mitch. Uh, 
regular listener of FTP for triathlon people. Um, yeah. And so, so what happened was Iron Man emailed apparently Strava users on Iron Man VR and was like, bummer, like Strava broke up with us. They think that like they own your data, but we know you're the only ones that own your data. So please sync like your Garmin device or your Polar device, whatever, like your activity tracking device directly with Ironman VR. And then a day later or something, um, Strava emailed everyone and was like, listen, just to like let you know, we did cut ties with Ironman VR. The truth is that we didn't appreciate their like data security practices we gave them ample time to like fix the issue they haven't yet so we're like shutting it down and that's what who that's what iron man said strava said that oh with that's what they said about iron man yeah and this is exactly what happened like uh probably six months ago yeah with strava and basically like a replay of your run app yeah um that just was like it was like google maps view and it showed like a little icon of you running or biking whatever um virtually the exact same email like confrontation yeah happened where like i got one from this replay app i don't remember what it was called um but they were like bummer strava broke up with us like we did everything we could they won't answer our calls or our texts like please sign up on our website blah 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 and then strava sent another email was like listen, we know you got this email. We really care about your data protection and this other app like wasn't doing what we wanted them to do. We gave them a lot of time and they couldn't do it. So now we're cutting ties. Yeah. So I feel like every single time Strava's coming out on top because they're like, we care about your data security and these apps are not like going through the process of securing that data. So literally like, I don't know who could have access to it, but it's possible that like, Someone could hack it. And I know Garmin had an issue with this on like army bases and stuff, right? Where they did. There was this like a year ago or something. They like your activity tracking could be like hacked or something. And it was like a problem on army bases with military personnel. I don't know that any of the facts for that exactly. But I understand that like activity tracking data is highly personal. As is like heart rate and sleep data, whereas I don't really care if people know my heart rate or sleep data. I do kind of care if people know where I am and my like regular run routes. Yeah. I'm a CIA agent on the side, as you all know. Um, but I understand where this is coming from. So again, I feel like Strava's coming out on top. This just, it feels so wild to me that the exact same thing has happened twice though. Yeah. It's a little suspicious. Of who's Strava, you think? <sighs> yeah. I feel like maybe they aren't giving enough time. What do you mean giving it Like every single time they're like, we gave them plenty of notice to change their practices and they oh, didn't. I just thought that maybe they might be actually the shady ones and none of the other places are shady. Oh. Uh, I don't know. Huh. No I don't idea. Know. Somebody's playing dirty. Or, or Strava just has like these crazy high expectations for data handling, you know? Maybe. And maybe no they're... one can meet those expectations. Yeah. It's definitely one or the other. They're either like completely bad or they are like the guardian angel of all data. I'd like to think that they're on the like good side. They probably I I'm on bad cop. I think they're You think Strava's the I bad think they're guy? They're scummy and selling your data to China. No. Yeah. Data data. Um remember that in South Africa? Yeah. We I say data, you say data? I don't know. In I South don't Africa we tried to buy a 
uh, like SIM card. <laughs> and we were like, can we just have like, whatever, 13 gigs of data or something? And she was like, what? We were like, data. Can we just buy like a, an internet card for data? And she was like, excuse me, data? And we were like, what? <laughs> yes. We're talking about data. If that's like the, the one language barrier we experience in South Africa is data or data. Yeah, anyway. That was ridiculous. It's just crazy that that was the entire language barrier to get our point across. <laughs> Anyways, last point of news. Um, the PTO Professional Triathletes Organization launched like I had a something called the PTO Hub, which is basically, at least as of now and recording this, it's basically just like YouTube interviews, like Instagram, whatever. It seems like like FaceTimes basically with a bunch of pro triathletes, um, just like catching up with people, um, I guess during this time especially. But I Holly's I really cute. I love her. I haven't even watched any of them yet. I watched Holly's. They're good? Holly's is, Holly is just adorable. Literally, Holly could say anything, and I'd be like, love it. What do they talk about? Just It's like random questions. Huh. Fun facts. All right. Well, there um, you go. I'm still pretty sure that the PTO's marketing is Talbot. What do you mean? Like, I'm just like 92% sure that like everything that they do is just like, it's like Talbot is doing it on his, like. Like, like through Talbot? Like yeah. Like he's their marketing manager. Hmm. Probably. I don't know. Just a guess. But that is it. That's it? We did it? That's it. So this was episode 21. We passed our 20 episode benchmark, which is 20 weeks. Yeah. We've been doing this for 20 weeks. Yeah. Pretty much nonstop. Cruising. Cruising. I really would like to get back to our studio, though. I know. I feel like this has been too much of a luxury for us. We keep, like, pausing it to do research. We're like, oh, shoot, we forgot to look that up. Quickly look it up. And if we were with Matt and Paige, they'd call us out on that. I don't know. I don't think they would. (laughs) All right. Well, we will see you next week's episode. Again, I don't have anything We don't have any previews. VR4 will have happened, so... We'll probably get you some updates there. And the Zwift try thing is happening every Wednesday, so. And that's Stay on tuned. YouTube. That's on YouTube Live, which is an interesting platform too. But they've been really hard to find. Yeah. I keep googling it, and it will bring up like a race from, like twenty seventeen. Yeah, it is really hard to find. Iron Man Now's stupid platform is impossible to find too. They're all. I like, think they all need to just use Twitch. Honestly, Twitch is a much more user-friendly platform. People are just afraid of it. Yeah, because it's a bad rap. But, oh well. All right, we will see you in the next one.